Hi, and welcome back to another episode of In Search of Insight, Nootropics Depot's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Erica, or Nootropics Depot Guru on Reddit, and sitting next to me is our product specialist, Emil. Hey, everyone. So this month is obviously a great time to kind of take stock of where we've been and where we're going. And as the new year approaches, 2022, we really wanted to start diving into a conversation that's a little bit more nuanced and um, catered toward your individual needs and goals for the upcoming year for your mental and physical health. So in this podcast, we're taking a little bit more of an introspective approach to our topic, which is mindfulness. And an aspect of mindfulness that we often explore with supplements and in the context of our mental and physical health is the concept of bioassaying and determining what is a supplement doing for us. Um, how can we determine their effects and their benefits? And then what's the best way to develop a sense for our baseline, for our body, our mood, our mental health? And then what supplements are doing to help us optimize those things on a daily basis and then long term as well? So for some people, this concept of taking stock of your physical body, your mental health, um, and the present moment, uh, we, we talk about this concept of mindfulness. Um, but in the world of supplements and nootropics, there's also a concept quite similar, but a little bit more technical and in-depth, and that is called bioassaying. And I'm going to let Emil give us a general understanding for what is bioassaying and what kind of scientific method goes into bioassaying that connects it with this idea of mindfulness. Yeah, so I think to start this off, we should maybe talk a little bit about mindfulness, because I think when we say mindfulness, we're often probably thinking, you know, yoga, meditation, spirituality, and things like that. But mindfulness is actually a lot more of a scientific concept. It's basically like the scientific way of doing meditation, usually loose from spirituality, which I think is a really interesting concept. And you have programs built around it, like mindfulness-based stress reduction, which goes a little bit more in depth and has a lot more meditation as a part of it. But it's a really good method of managing stress levels with things you can do yourself. And I think, and there's a lot of research backing this up. So I really like this concept of mindfulness. And recently I realized we do a lot of mindfulness ourselves when we're testing new supplements, when we are putting stacks together, when we're making new formulations, we need to test them out. And not a whole lot of people are very good at actually testing these stacks out. So we have a pretty small group of people, myself included, and Erica is included in this as well, where we go in and test supplements because we seem to be able to parse out these effects a little bit better than the average person, which kind of makes us analytical instruments to a certain degree. And but the reason why sometimes for us it's a little easier to tell the effects of a supplement, it's not because we're... Um, we're so special or we have this this hidden skill, um, but it's just a matter of familiarity and time spent observing our physical state, um, taking notes and going through this kind of mental process that we're going to explore in this podcast and tell you about um, something that you can do independently from, you know, any other kind of process or interaction to determine what's going on in your body. Yeah. And 
actually, before we really dive into it, I want to address a Reddit question we got. So for this podcast, we are doing Reddit questions again. Thanks for the submissions. We really had a lot of submissions this time. So we'll have a lot of content and questions to talk about on this podcast. But there's a question from... LaMansion93, which I'll have Erica read. So LaMansion93 asks, how do you personally account for confirmation bias in the context of taking new products of which you may have formed expectations through your research? And this is an excellent question because confirmation bias is something that can have some serious impacts on our perception of what a supplement is doing. So Emil, um, what are your first thoughts when hearing this question? Yeah, confirmation bias is one of my biggest enemies. I know it exists, it's always there. There's no way to fool it. Um, It's hardwired into our brains. So, you know, confirmation bias is there, placebo is there, the nocebo effect is there, and the more expensive a raw ingredient gets, I'm sure there's some expensive placebo there, all of which affect our experience of what we're taking. So that's a big problem. When we're bioassaying new supplements that we're going to release, it's really important for the owner and I to get a good understanding of what's happening. But we realize our limitations and we realize that we are sensitive to confirmation bias and to the placebo, nocebo, expensive placebo, all of those different effects. So the way we solve this is instead of solving it for ourselves, because this is probably not really possible we just enlist other people to help us out um, and these people our co-workers at the office and colleagues and friends and family they sometimes aren't as clued in about these things as we are and we'll maybe say ah oh, this product may help you recover from exercise a little bit better or this product should have a stimulating effect but we don't go into the pharmacology what it does and things like that and we just see what response they have very naturally to the product and this really helps guide our process and the interesting thing is sometimes we find that we found a particular effect but no one else found that effect so is that because we read the research and we have some confirmation bias going on or is it because we're a little bit more mindful and we have better tools available for determining what's going on Or is it possible that some people are non-responders and there's actually a moment that comes where maybe a product needs to be uh, reformulated or something needs to be changed in order to get to a more even response from the people who are doing the bioassaying? That happens a lot too. And it happened with sleep support, for example. Um, A subgroup of people who were taking sleep support noticed that it was actually making their sleep worse, not better. And this was prior to sleep support being released, right? No, this was actually after sleep support was released. So before sleep support was released, we had a similar problem. I had, and this isn't necessarily confirmation bias, but this just goes to show how important bio is saying is. When we were first formulating sleep support, I had put in a compound that on paper seemed to work perfectly fine for sleep. In fact, it should have been a really, really good ingredient to have in there for sleep induction. And it did work for that. However, two hours into our sleep, it became stimulating. Well, we didn't know it was this compound yet at the time, but it became very stimulating. And 
woke people up in a puddle of sweat. So this is obviously not good. But here is kind of where confirmation bias goes comes in again. We were looking through the formula thinking what in there could be causing this effect. And maybe because of a certain confirmation bias about one or two compounds, I could have maybe picked the wrong compound out because I thought, you know, that one, if I look through the research, that one has the most potential maybe for keeping us awake. So I'm going to try and take that one in isolation. And then maybe I do find, hey, it keeps me awake, but that might be placebo confirmation bias, whatever can be going on there. So that was tough. Luckily, we were able to just bioassay each one, take it, see what the effects are. And we did identify the product and we took it. It made us a little bit sleepy. Two hours later, it became noticeably stimulating and a few people noticed this effect. So I think when we're talking about confirmation bias, the trick around it is just enlisting more people to do it and not just relying on a single account. Yeah, absolutely. And then to kind of wrap up the story about um, this great example of confirmation bias and bioassaying for sleep support, oh, then, yeah. <laughs> then once the sleep support was actually released, there was another kind of discovery um, which took place because of the variety of people that were trying it. And then the product was reformulated yet again. Yeah. And uh, the second time around, because it happened in such a small subgroup of people, it was a lot more difficult to find which ingredient was causing it. And during our discussions, I think a lot of confirmation bias popped up. We all had an idea, okay, I think that one might have an effect. I think that one might have an effect. And that could have maybe influenced some of our reformulation efforts. But luckily, we actually enlisted some of the people who were having issues with sleep, and we sent them out a new formulation, and they confirmed for us that this formulation they could actually sleep well with. So, yes, confirmation bias is a huge enemy to any science and any formulation we do, but there's ways around it. They're not perfect, but we can figure out systems that work as accurately as possible for our purposes. And also be open to the fact that um, confirmation bias can be very powerful. And so the more perspectives that we have, the better we are able to determine what's working for most people and then what's the likely cause for something not working. And this is something that's more on a broad scale when it comes to bioassaying. But then when thinking about individuals and using these concepts, mindfulness and bioassaying for, you know, just yourself, um, keeping confirmation bias in mind when you're noticing beneficial effects or maybe some negative or less desirable effects, this can be really important too, because it can also help you from feeling like that gut reaction of saying, oh, like it's definitely this product that's that's helping me to achieve X or this product is is really giving me issues with Y. It might be true, but the more research and the more time spent really investigating where the source of that issue is from, the more likely you are to find a, a good solution for yourself, whether that's continuing to explore the supplement, maybe different dosages or trying something different. Yeah. And I think you actually something I missed in my kind of analysis of it was time. Sure, if you take one supplement one time and it has an effect, like a big acute effect, that could certainly be placebo or confirmation bias that you're getting from like anecdotal or reports you've read or research you've read. But 
can that effect be replicatable every day for a week every day for two weeks every day for a month and it becomes less and less likely than that you are experiencing placebo type effects or confirmation bias type effects so time is also a factor that can kind of negate some of these um, confirmation bias issues and this is also why sometimes we just say hey take the supplement for two weeks before really diving in and going what is it doing for me and it's because sometimes a supplement just it needs a bit of time maybe you need a bit of time to iron out some of the placebo effects some of the confirmation bias to really get a solid understanding of what it's doing i think this leads us actually perfectly into another question we got on reddit which was from mr not so serious this question is perfectly fitting so what is your take on cycling supplements the idea of taking supplements with premeditated breaks in between seems to be a common practice among many people, usually to prevent developing a tolerance and to avoid undesirable effects. Nootropics Depot supplements often provide recommendations regarding amounts and dosages. However, it does not touch on the topic of whether or not a given supplement should be cycled or taken every day. Do you think that some supplements cannot reach their true potential because they're being cycled too often? Yes, I do think that's the case. Um, I think for a lot of what we do and a lot of the supplements that we take, cycling is not really necessary. I think cycling really comes out of the bodybuilding world in which individuals are taking supplements or you know other stuff that is really, really pushing the limits, riding the line for the most maximum amount of benefits. You can't do that forever. So you basically, you push it, you push it, you push it as hard as possible. You walk the line and then you have to stop at a certain point for safety precautions rather than tolerance. But the interesting thing is that this concept has kind of bled into supplements, nootropic world as well. And here we're a little bit more concerned about things like tolerance. And you could certainly cycle certain things that have acute effects like stimulating compounds like dynamine maybe subroxy dynamax caffeine not like those kind of products that have fairly noticeable acute effects if you want to keep those fairly noticeable acute effects then sure cycling it on and off or you know maybe not even getting that complex with it just taking it once every every once in a while so once a week twice a week not really being on a strict cycling on or off schedule but for most other things i think there are acute benefits and there are long-term benefits and i think for most of the stuff we do we are more interested in the long-term benefits than we are interested in the short-term benefits so a good example for myself is subroxy subroxy has an acute stimulating effect this is great actually same with polygala they both have acute stimulating effects that i really enjoy and over time i start getting used to those and that's where the tolerance comes in and it's not as noticeable but i actually find that taking subroxy or polygala long term has more benefits and this could be to some of the other pharmacological actions of subroxy and polygala specifically the neuroplasticity effects but for me, even after taking Subroxy, 100 milligrams of Subroxy every single day for six months, it's still stimulating. So I think if we keep our dosages low and we take other things as well, surrounding it as support supplements, then 
we can actually maintain the effectiveness of a certain supplement for long periods of time. And I think once we start getting into the three month plus range, some really interesting things sometimes start to happen, even in, you know, the the two to four week area. And you see this with supplements like Bacopa Monieri. It has a pronounced acute effect. Very pleasant, actually. It's kind of calming, actually works well as a sleep aid as well. But the most interesting effects with Bacopa actually pop up two to four weeks after you start taking it. And that's where the memory effects start taking hold. But those still get better after the four week mark and they will continue getting better. And as far as I'm aware, there's no long-term studies of individuals taking Bacopa for years, like two to four years or, or multiple months. But if there are long-term benefits there, you can imagine that over prolonged periods of time does keep getting more selective and better. I really love that broad and long-term idea, sort of thinking about moving into the future and, you know, 2022 with a different approach to like cycling or dosage of certain supplements. So what you're saying is that the consistency and the long-term benefits can often be different and develop over time, which is really cool. And I think that's something that Mr. Not So Serious touched on in their question, which is, are we getting benefits? Are we getting more benefits from cycling? And the simple answer would be likely no. Likely it is better to be taking a more manageable or perhaps like a slightly smaller dose over a long period of time and then determining the benefits as you continue. Yeah, so if we're kind of going back to even the the dynamine example, we can also think about coffee. I'm sure most of us consume coffee every single day and or other caffeine sources and we don't take a break. I know for myself personally, it's probably not the best thing to have started drinking coffee at around age 14, but I've been drinking coffee for a very, very long time every single day and I have stopped for a tolerance break. And when coming back to caffeine again, caffeine was actually very unpleasant. So over time, the effects of caffeine actually got more pleasant and I think I got more out of it, even though acutely it wasn't that stimulating. After stopping it, I felt fine too. And overall, I think I was off caffeine for almost a year as a bit of an experiment for myself to see how can I live my life without caffeine and I could live it perfectly fine. However, after starting caffeine again and kind of getting over that initial edginess of caffeine and the unpleasant effects, once it started to work again as I knew it from a year before, it was very pleasant and I think my overall quality of life is better with small amounts of caffeine. I only drink one cup of coffee a day, so it's really not a whole lot. But that one cup of coffee over a prolonged period of time has actually been very beneficial for me, probably more so than just the acute effects. Yeah, definitely. And this is something that Emil and I can relate on a lot too, because we were both uh, baristas in in past lives. Um, so we both have this experience of you know developing um, somewhat of a tolerance to caffeine and then when we left those barista lives behind, the, the transformation that happens when you're drinking multiple cups of coffee, around coffee, tasting espresso all the time, and then you go 
back to a different job or back to your life and you're not drinking so much coffee, it takes some time to to come down from that like tolerance of caffeine. But I had a similar experience recently. I typically drink one cup of coffee a day, but sometimes I just love coffee so much I need to have two. And it's just too much for me to handle. Even if I want it, I found that one cup of coffee a day is totally fine. It doesn't affect my sleep, doesn't make me feel too edgy or too jittery, but it did take me quite a while to get to the point where I could say, okay, I love my coffee, I love the flavor, but I also don't want caffeine to be controlling my life or my ability to, you know, hold a utensil or have a normal conversation or, you know, keep my general mental and physical health in check without feeling like I'm wired all the time. So this is kind of a good example of like an everyday example of bioassing and mindfulness, because no matter how much I love the taste of coffee, at the end of the day, I want coffee to enhance my life and not, you know, cause, yeah, exactly. Not take it over, not, not get in the way of my ability to, to think clearly and to feel, you know, generally calm in a sense of, of groundedness. And how long were you drinking the two cups of coffee a day? Um, at least a year and a half, at least a year and a half. And then probably a little longer after that as well. So after doing two cups of coffee a day for long term, how did that compare to doing one cup of coffee a day or even less long term? Well, there were definitely a few things that I noticed um, when I was drinking like two cups of coffee a day. And the first one was just a general kind of panicky and uncomfortable feeling right when I would wake up in the morning. Like the first thing I would notice was, uh, you know, some unsettled stomach and just this kind of panicky, like urgent feeling, which was not something that I had experienced prior to my sort of two cup a day habit. Do you think maybe the uh, two cups a day were impacting your sleep while maybe one cup a day wasn't? It's certainly possible because when I was drinking two cups a day, I would find sometimes it was hard to go to sleep. Sometimes I wouldn't sleep very well and I would actually wake up quite a bit throughout the night. So I feel like this was just having like an overall more negative effect for me. But then at a certain point, my tolerance for caffeine got to be so effective that then I would do a third cup sometimes. Um, and that's when All I... All right, well, you, you don't want your tolerance to get too effective. Well, that's what I'm <laughs> you saying. You want to keep it under control. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So when, when I was drinking two cups of coffee, my tolerance was so effective that then I could actually drink a third. However, at that point, um, my tolerance wasn't helping me out. And it certainly was just, it was, it, it's a natural factor of taking more and more caffeine over a long period of time that your body adjusts to it in some ways. But what I was experiencing at that three cup a day point was like, the not desirable effects of caffeine. And so I started to kind of reel it back in, back to two cups a day, and then down to one cup a day. And I definitely don't have the same issues that I was having at that point when I was drinking lots and lots of coffee. Like, I'm not having the same issues with waking up in the middle of the night, not having the same issues with waking up with an upset stomach or, you know, a racing mind. And some of that is certainly because of other supplements that I've begun to take. But I know for a fact that caffeine above one cup of coffee a day has a very significant effect on my mental and physical health. And I've been able to determine that because I've been exploring that for the past at least three, if not more years. Yeah. And for me, it's actually somewhat similar, except I seem to just be able to consume unlimited amounts of caffeine. 
I never really get to a point where it's edgy or jittery, except for when I had no tolerance at all and I got into it. Again, I realized, okay, caffeine is, is quite powerful. It can have some undesirable effects and some really desirable effects. But after consuming caffeine regularly, I can just consume as much as I want without any undesirable effects. But then it just stops working. So for me, when I drink one cup of coffee a day, I get all of the benefits that I want from caffeine. I don't seem to build up a tolerance as much. It has beneficial longer term effects. And yeah, I, I can just stick with that level. I don't have to go over it. So I think to sum it all up, because we, we kind of waffled on a little bit here, but a big thing with cycling is if you are pushing the limits and you are taking high doses of something that you know you will build a tolerance for and you want to keep those beneficial effects around, then maybe cycling is necessary. However, I would never recommend to push the limits like that. I am always a proponent of more a balanced long-term approach so that we can work to work goals and not achieve a goal and sacrifice um, other aspects of our life. And to some of you who have been around Nootropics for a long time, this concept probably sounds pretty familiar because it is exactly what Nootropics are supposed to be, a long-term approach, something that is safe, long-term sustainable, you don't really build much of a tolerance to, even though, you know, this is pretty much unavoidable for most things, but we can keep those tolerance levels low. So this is kind of what Corneliu E. Gurgia said, and I really hope I'm getting this name right, because he's kind of the, the founding father of nootropics. So it's always important to kind of go back to those early days of nootropics to really see, okay, what was it? And the goal was just long-term. These things are supposed to be taken long-term. Cycling wasn't really a thing that was talked about. It should just be long-term sustainable. And I think that is the approach that I've seen work the best most often. Just be patient. Over time, you will reach those goals that you want. Usually when we try and reach them in a couple days, in a week, maybe two weeks, we're maybe pushing the limits a little bit too hard. Then you have to cycle off. Then you lose those benefits. Then you have to cycle back on. And you're not starting from zero again, but you are starting from a disadvantage again because you've lost some of those beneficial effects. Whereas if you just take it longer term, then you can have more beneficial effects. And I think just to kind of wrap it up, a good example of this is creatine supplementation. A lot of people like to cycle creatine, but it doesn't really make any sense. It's better to just take five grams of creatine every single day for the rest of your life because it's possible rather than cycling on and off like a lot of bodybuilders tend to do. They'll take 25 grams of creatine for a cup for a week, I think, and then they'll drop it a little bit and then they'll get into a maintenance dose. But during those week or two where they're taking higher doses, they experience a lot of undesirable effects that you wouldn't get from lower doses of creatine over time. And over time, those lower doses of creatine will reach the same beneficial effects as cycling with higher doses of creatine and then having to go off of it and on and just this constant plan of like, okay, when am I going to start the next creatine cycle? When I, do I have to go off? How am I going to plan that with my diet and exercise regimen and all of that? 
it's way easier to just take creatine regularly every day forget about all of that get the effects you want long term absolutely and not only is it easier in terms of developing a habit but it also gives you a little bit more of a place of control or consistency so that you can determine what other effects or what other variables in your life might be causing you know benefits or maybe not so desirable effects in that goal setting and goal achieving period so to get back to a question that was specifically relevant to caffeine Um, We already talked about our personal coffee journey and our caffeine experiences, but Ziatris asked a good question about caffeine. What's your view on cycling caffeine? I've come across conflicting information regarding whether or not to cycle it since cycling off, for example, on weekends, leads to a come down effect, which isn't ideal for performance. Now, for me personally, if I don't have coffee, if I don't have my one cup of coffee a day, I really, really notice it. But I do this occasionally because sometimes I just want to know for myself, like, how do I feel on a day without coffee? This isn't something I do all the time, maybe a couple of times a month. It just depends. But generally speaking, one cup a day, every single day, has worked really, really well for me. Um, Emil can get a little more specific when it comes to the cycling idea, but I find that that consistent single cup a day really works well and when I do take that one day off, you know, every once in a while, I don't experience specific terrible or very, very noticeable effects. I might be a little bit more tired or a little more sleepy by the end of the day, but that's just how it is for me. What are your thoughts more technically speaking, Emil? Yeah, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. So maybe we need to get into like the neuroscience of tolerance. So how do we get tolerance to certain compounds and this is a pretty complex thing and it involves some genes and things like that which i'm not going to get into here let's keep it a little bit simple we'll just talk about up or down regulation of receptors so for caffeine the way it produces a wakefulness promoting and stimulating effect is by attaching itself to adenosine a1 and adenosine a2 receptors once it's attached it blocks these receptors, so it is a adenosine A1 and A2 antagonist. When it's doing this, the response of those receptors are that they are getting much less stimulation by adenosine, and they want more adenosinergic activity. So a way around this is to just populate some of these neurons with more adenosine receptors, and we call this upregulation. So basically, over time, caffeine needs to block more adenosine receptors to have the same effect and adenosine likely just has a normal effect because of those extra adenosine receptors however when caffeine is not present it means there's a lot more adenosine receptors for adenosine to bind to so if we're constantly cycling on and off caffeine then we are going to have specific points in the week where we have more adenosinergic activity, which could be actually quite interesting. So for example, the adenosine A2 receptor, when it gets activated, it actually helps promote BDNF levels and neuroplasticity. And this is one of the ways by which oroxalin A actually seems to promote neuroplasticity. Oroxalin A functions as an adenosine A2 agonist instead of an antagonist like caffeine. So maybe there could be a benefit 
if you take caffeine, for example, five days a week and then in the weekend you cycle off and you don't have anything to do, you can just sit around and nap a little bit and, you know, be more relaxed and you don't need that energy and you can handle being off caffeine, then maybe that's an interesting way to enhance neuroplasticity. So that could be interesting. On the other hand, maybe you do a lot during the weekend and you can't necessarily afford to do that, then I would just recommend taking lower doses of caffeine longer term because there are also positive things to reducing adenosinergic activity. And caffeine has beneficial effects long term as well. So there's kind of two options. Another option, and this is what I've been doing, is I just take Subroxy every day and I take caffeine every day, which means that likely the adenosine A2 receptor is being held in check a little bit by the combination of caffeine and Subroxy. So my adenosine A1 receptors might be getting majorly upregulated, but the adenosine A2 receptors may not get that upregulated. So that might help. I'm not entirely sure. I do actually think it makes the effects of caffeine smoother because you are kind of filtering out the adenosine A2 activity, which adenosine A2 seems to cause some of the jittery, edgy effects of caffeine. So combining them is interesting. But to get back on topic, take this information and maybe try out a month where you do caffeine five days a week, cycle off in the weekend. See if that has any positive effects. And then the next month, just take caffeine every day and then compare those two months together or maybe two weeks. Maybe a month is too long. Maybe two weeks, compare them, see how you felt during a single period with caffeine and the subsequent period without caffeine. Compare them, see maybe did you have beneficial effects cycling off or did you have negative effects cycling off and then kind of weigh it and go for myself personally, what is the best approach? And I think that really ties in with what this whole podcast is about and it's mindfulness and it's being mindful of what works best for you because we're all different we all have different uh, biochemistries different densities of receptors and different absorption parameters and pharmacokinetic profiles so yes we can average things out and there can be an average recommendation of what is the best overall practice but that best overall practice might not work for everyone. So that's where the mindfulness aspect comes in. Pay attention to what is happening in your body. Pay attention to what's happening in your brain. Maybe you have a notebook or other ways to keep track of what's happening. Yeah, that was actually exactly what was on my mind when we we're getting back to this concept of mindfulness and how taking something long term and giving yourself more time to determine the effects can be beneficial. One thing that's really important when thinking about mindfulness and taking a mindful approach is actually giving yourself the tools to determine what was happening when you first started taking the supplement and then what was happening, you know, a month, two months, three months down the line and keeping track of that information. And it doesn't have to be, you know, writing an essay every day, but just making notes 
and and keeping track of where you're at mentally, physically, as you're trying something new, and then returning to those notes and returning to those observations can really have an additional beneficial effect in your sort of mindfulness and your supplement journey. Another thing I was thinking about as Emil was talking about what kind of tools we have, what kind of analysis tools we have to determine what's going on in our own bodies, because we are all unique and we have different biochemistry. Um, Another thing that's unique about us is our lifestyles and our goals and what we hope to gain or accomplish, you know, on a daily basis and the, the way that we spend our energy throughout the day, our stress tolerance and these different kind of more global and social aspects of our lives. And these can also have really prominent effects on the way that we feel mentally and physically. So in addition to being really in tune with what's happening inside your body, a part of mindfulness that's also really important is knowing what factors in your life, you know, that that may be not happening in your own physical body, but that are happening around you, to you, or with you. These also have a really significant effect too. And applying mindfulness and even the to, weather comes in here. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if we don't get enough sun exposure and we're not taking vitamin D, then this could have an effect on bone strength, immune function, and even mental functioning and mood and, and all of those kind of things. So sometimes there are things even outside of our control, outside of our bodies that influence maybe how we respond to certain supplements. Like maybe if our mood is low and under our normal baseline because of a lack of sunshine, then a supplement that normally elevates us above our baseline is now just pulling us right back to baseline, maybe slightly underneath. And Personally, this might feel like, oh, okay, this supplement doesn't work as well now. Or maybe maybe this batch didn't work as well as the batch before, but maybe the batch is exactly the same, and it's just our external environment that's different. Exactly, and you can see how quickly um, these sort of variables of, of our baseline are for our mental and physical health it starts to stack up so fast. Okay, there's what's happening inside my body. There's what's happening in my brain. There's what's happening in my daily life. There's the people I know. There's the weather. There's, you know, my job, my hobbies, my interests. Like, it really quickly can feel very overwhelming to think about nailing down and analyzing and identifying every single variable that might be causing changes. But this is where the mindfulness comes back in because that overwhelming feeling or, you know, that long list of variables that starts to stack up at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is we're not trying to control every last single variable in our lives. It's just not realistic. It's not possible. But what we are trying to do is we're trying to optimize and understand ourselves better and our environment better and the things that we're taking can have really significant benefits for us long term. So I think it's time to jump into another question. Yeah, we got a lot this time. Thanks, everyone. Yes, thank you for your participation. We really appreciate it. And we're glad that we're able to have conversations, you know, Emil and I on the podcast, and we really enjoy having conversations with you on Reddit as well. So if you're not familiar with the Nootropics Depot subreddit, you should be because there's so much information, conversation, and activity going on there every single day, um, pretty much at all hours of the day. So check us out on our subreddit, r slash Now that we've talked at length about Emil and I's personal uh, caffeine journey, 
We've talked a little bit about cycling of supplements, and we've delved a little bit into the concept of mindfulness and bioassaying confirmation bias. Let's just get really specific and intentional. We're going to give you a simple stepwise process for checking in with yourself and determining how is the supplement affecting me, what's my baseline, and what are my goals using mindfulness and bioassaying. And to give you these tools and steps, I'll just walk you through what I do when we get a new ingredient in and when I have to bioassay. So for me, the most important thing to remember is that I need to start off with a blank slate. Let's say I have a new paint color and I want to determine what color this paint is. And let's say it's green paint and I put it on a green background. It's going to be really difficult for me to determine what exactly the color is it makes much more sense to have it be on a blank canvas. I just put a, a lick of paint on there and I can see exactly, okay, green. Bio saying I approach in a similar way. I want to have most everything out of my system so that I can see what I'm looking at in isolation. So the way I achieve this is basically first thing in the morning when I wake up, I grab whatever I'm trying to bio assay and I take it before having had coffee, before food, before any other supplements. And then I start a timer and I go, I just kind of sit there. I feel like in the morning after I wake up, my mind is especially blank sometimes. So this is a really good time to actually buy OSA. So then I can just sit there and determine, okay, I'm starting from this very familiar state, waking up in the morning. How is this changing? And I'm used to it changing from things like caffeine. So now I can pay attention and see what is this other thing changing in my morning feeling, routine, all of that. So I think however you find a way to do this, it's really important to start with a blank slate and a clear mind and not have anything else be present because there can be other interactions of different supplements you can be i would also say if maybe you wake up and you're feeling kind of grumpy or something like that skip the bio saying for the day make sure it's on a day where you just feel totally normal and neutral not super happy not super sad just a normal everyday kind of day then what i usually like to do when i start getting the initial tingles of what's going on and this is obviously a lot easier to determine with supplements that have big acute effects like subroxy or even lemon balm start noticing when things start changing and these changes are really 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 subtle most people will miss them but if you slow down enough and you can kind of relax for a little bit and have nothing else going on if you really pay attention you'll probably start noticing some little changes oh maybe i feel slightly more clear in my head or i have a bit more energy or my i have a bit of a spring in my step my mood seems to be good i want to go make myself a nice breakfast or something like that i'm more motivated to do that pay attention to those little things and then think is this normal for me do i normally get motivated to mop the floors in the morning no, that's a really strange thing. I would never mop the floors in the morning right when I wake up, but if a supplement makes me feel that way, then hey, maybe this is a really good one for motivation. So step one would be start with a blank slate, and then step two would be 
ask yourself a series of questions about how your mental state and your physical state may be responding to this supplement that you're taking. Yes. And, you know, on the flip side, if, if we want to expand those first two steps, let's say we are determining whether something works for pain, for like an ache we are having, then it makes sense to test out the new supplement when you are having an active ache without having taken anything else. Then you can really go, hmm, is the pain in my knee going away or is the pain in my lower back going away? going through it a little bit there. Of course, here, placebo, nocebo, expensive placebo, confirmation bias becomes a lot trickier because if you really think, hey, this supplement's going to help me with my pain and I have a lot of hope for it because I'm in a lot of pain all day and I don't want to be in a lot of pain all day, then maybe that supplement is not helping as much as maybe the placebo effect. So that is always something we should be aware of. And that was a really good question that was asked on Reddit. And I think just the main thing is to be aware that we are all susceptible to this, no matter how cognitively strong you are, no matter how experienced you are, no matter how much um, knowledge you have, if you have a PhD in neuroscience, I don't care. You are susceptible to this effect. I'm susceptible to it even after five, seven years of doing this pretty regularly, at least once a week. I know that this is an issue. So accept the issue and think what limitations this can bring in. So this is an important thing to realize in step one and two. Yes. So confirmation bias is going to be present throughout the process, but I think it can be especially present in the early stages of the process of bioassaying. So step one, blank slate. Step two, asking these initial questions of what might be changing what the supplement might be doing for you. And then step three would be, I imagine, letting those effects blossom. So those initial tingles you get, start paying attention to those and start seeing how they develop. Uh, maybe this is kind of similar to, uh, for anyone who's listening to this, who's also into wine, tasting wine is a similar type of process. You open up the bottle, maybe you taste a little bit. You smell it first, you swirl it around, see if it smells a little bit different, taste it, and then maybe you want to decant it and let it sit for a while and see how some of those initial flavors you tasted, how those start to develop. Maybe you want to sample it at 15 minutes, at 30 minutes, just another little sip and just see how is it evolving, how is it changing. Do the same for bioassaying. Those initial feelings hang on to those and see how those develop. See if they increase in intensity or maybe they mellow out or maybe they completely change in character. And, you know, this is with the sleep support issue we had with this compound that was stimulating. That was a really good example of this type of bioassaying because if you stop paying attention at the one hour mark, then it would have been really hard to identify the stimulating effects at the two hour mark. But because we were paying attention to the whole duration of action of this compound, we were able to identify and see how the effects evolved and blossomed and changed and became different. 
So part of this step three then is also determining the duration of action, like Emil said, of the supplement as a whole. And this can really help us to determine what might be the best time of day to take a certain supplement, depending on how long we notice the perceivable effects, if there are any, we might want to take it in the morning or the afternoon or right before bed. Yes, absolutely. That's always a, a good thing to be aware of. How long is something lasting? Is it going to negatively impact my sleep, maybe, if, if it is a stimulating compound? So that initial bioassaying step, completely on an empty stomach, first thing in the morning, it makes it really easy to determine how long is something lasting for me? What kind of effects do I have? Maybe six hours from now, eight hours from now. Usually that does mean it's a day where maybe you don't want to take any additional supplements. So usually when I do it after about two or three hours, I will have like a cup of coffee and some food and just some normal lunch. But usually I will not take anything else that day. Just maintain that semi-blank slate for most of the day. Sometimes though, which is really interesting, and like Erica was saying earlier, I also, I really need a cup of coffee in the morning, but I have actually noticed with bio saying that sometimes I'll take something that completely negates the need for any coffee, which is also interesting. And those are just kind of small anomalies that happen consistently that you can find here and there and determine and, and then see how that affects maybe your supplementation. So we have step one, two, and three, and that would kind of cover really the basic elements of bioassaying on one particular day. Well, actually, I I think there is one thing that we're still missing. So we're bioassaying on a completely empty stomach now. Uh, and I think we did a very interesting blog recently talking about pharmacokinetics and how we can change the absorption of different supplements. So we can bioassay this as well. So let's say we try a supplement on a completely empty stomach for the first time. First thing in the morning, it kicks in really quickly. Maybe it kicks in a little bit too quickly. Maybe it kicks in so quickly that it kind of upsets our stomach a little bit, which is not ideal. So if this is the only test we do, just on an empty stomach first thing in the morning, then maybe this is not representative of normal use of this compound. So what we can do is we can try it on a full stomach, try it, before a meal, try it after a meal, try it an hour after breakfast, or kind of play around with that. And then we have that initial reference. We have that reference of what does it do on an empty stomach. And then we, from that reference, we can go and determine, okay, does, do the effects get better when I add a little bit of food? And I have found with quite a few supplements that I actually like the slightly slower absorption pattern of taking a supplement with food because not only does it not kick in as quickly and sometimes it's a little bit jarring when something kicks in quickly so a more gradual rise but a more gradual rise means also a more gradual decrease in the compound so we can actually extend the duration of action so this is an interesting point too and that blog that Emil is talking about is such a great resource for learning really the basics and getting into some intense technical aspects of absorption, talking about CMAX and TMAX for those of you who are aware. So I would highly recommend checking out that blog. It's called When Should I Take My Supplements? And to kind of 
round out and give you a conceptual idea of what we're talking about with the empty stomach bioassaying versus the full stomach bioassaying is that when we're bioassaying, we are forming these manageable variables for ourselves to determine what is happening over the course of a day, a week, a month. So that variable of the empty stomach, and now we have an additional variable to bioassay with the full stomach. Yeah, absolutely. And who knows, maybe we find that certain foods actually enhance the effects somehow. Uh, there's still a lot we don't know about how certain things absorb. There is some idea that bile salts can really influence absorption and different foods and spices especially affect uh, bile salt concentration and bile acid concentration and that can then influence absorption as well. And furthermore, even if you have, uh, let's say, a black pepper salami sandwich, you are consuming a lot of black pepper. And in that black pepper is piperine, a compound that we utilize, for example, in our curcumin supplements to help enhance absorption. But that means that if you were eating a diet that was fairly high in black pepper, then you might actually notice enhanced absorption with certain meals and certain meals might actually hamper absorption. So for example, if you were just taking magnesium oxide and you happen to be eating a food that is high in phytic acid, then phytic acid can actually bind to that magnesium oxide and make it very hard for that complex of phytic acid and magnesium oxide to absorb. So now it's starting to get a little bit complex. Of course, there's a lot of variables going on. So this is actually why taking something on an empty stomach is the best way to bioassay, because we're not thinking of foods that might enhance or decrease absorption, and we're not thinking about food matrix effects, like the effect of phytic acid binding with magnesium oxide. So reduce the amount of variables while you were testing. And, you know, that's for anyone who's a scientist and who's listening to this, that probably sounds familiar. You want to control your variables and actually have as little variables as possible, usually, and an ability to tweak those variables with a lot of flexibility. I like that idea. And I think now that we've talked about bioessaying a little bit with these three primary steps, and then that addition of you know, potentially bioassaying with a full stomach as well. I'm curious, Emil, what other steps would someone take to kind of give a, a well-rounded and sort of a, a complete introduction to bioassaying on like a single given day? What would be step four? Hmm. I think step four might not exist. I think, you know... Or perhaps step four is just that end of the day reflection. Yeah. And... I think, yeah, that, that can be step four. So, or, or documentation, perhaps. Documentation. If you really want to get into it and you want to document and you can refer back to it, that's, that's a really good approach. I personally don't really like this approach. I like to just experience it and reflect back on the experience and then just do it a few times. And then after I really have a good idea of what's going on, I'll maybe take some notes and form a good idea. But usually what I'm trying to do is form a mental idea of what it's doing for myself and how I can maybe integrate it with other things. And, you know, this is a, a way I learn personally. I don't like taking notes. I learn better when I just pay attention and experience and let it all happen. So 
this will be different for everyone too. So I think that's another thing to keep in mind. Bio is saying, and we presented a few general practices that will make it easy if you adhere to, but this is not the end-all be-all method of doing it. And you might find that you want to take notes or you might find that you don't want to take notes and you just like the overall experience and getting a good feel for that experience. Because for me personally, sometimes I have a hard time putting into words the experience of what I experienced. So then maybe writing it down is not advantageous and just knowing what you experience is the most advantageous thing. It's also the least scientific, I know. It's the re least replicatable, it's the least um, uh, time, well, I don't know how to say this, but basically it doesn't have staying power. If maybe a year from now you wanted to reflect on your experience, you can easily go through your notes, but that experience might be out of your brain already, unless you're taking some really strong memory enhancers, which we might talk about later. Absolutely. And I think it's important what Emil's talking about. Um, you know, for you personally, taking notes isn't something you'd like to do. And in fact, it might actually distort your memory or give you kind of a false sense, depending on how you're reading those notes, you know, at a later date. For me, it's the exact opposite. I really love taking notes and you know, archiving and, and organizing and putting down the, the details and the descriptors and the words and the sensations that I am experiencing so that I can go look at it at a later date. But I do have to say, because I know you, Emil, you're a very mindful person and I know that you really grind yourself in the present moment. And that's a really big part of how you think and how you, how you approach the world. And for me, I'm thinking, you know, 10 miles a minute and I'm often thinking ahead. And so archiving and writing down and documenting things can be really helpful for me because no matter how much I may try to be mindful in a given moment, sometimes I've just got too much on my mind, but I do want to keep track of what's happening in those subtle changes when I'm taking a supplement. And then I can revisit that in a moment where I have some time and I'm at a little bit, you know, calmer state. Maybe I'm a little more mindful and I can look back through those notes and remember and recall, oh yeah, I was having this feeling or this sensation was really was really surprising to me. So it's really different for everyone. And now we're getting kind of into the, the other side of the bioassay, which is mindfulness. And whether you are really familiar with mindfulness or it's something that's completely new to you, mindfulness is also going to be a very specifically individual experience and something that you can practice. But at the end of the day, the goal that we're trying to achieve is we're trying to be aware of what's happening in our body. And we're trying to be more cognizant of how the things that we're putting into our body are affecting our daily lives. And that has really incredible opportunities long term when you're taking those different steps to be more observant and more aware of yourself and of your environment. Yeah, and what Erica was saying a little bit too, maybe mindfulness might take a bit of practice to it, might might take some developing. So I do a, a couple of different training exercises for myself to stay mindful. And one of the big ones, and when we are traveling to a direction, 
and we do this over and over and over, you might have noticed that if you are commuting to work in your car, you might not remember how you actually got to work. Or like if you locked the door of your house. Or if you locked <laughs> the door of your house, like things that you do routinely and just start leaving your your consciousness, I guess. I'm, I'm not, I guess we don't really know exactly how this process works. Super in-depth. We have a general understanding, but basically sometimes our brain kind of just takes over in autopilot so we don't have to spend all too many cognitive resources on basic things like well it's i guess it's not basic driving a car is very complex or so locking your actually, door yeah <laughs> or locking your door it is kind of scary that we do these things on autopilot sometimes but what i like to do is when i get to my destination and i have that feeling i immediately try and retrace and i sometimes this is like a good training exercise how did i get here just in physical space and i try to mentally reroute how i came there so i can visualize the route that i took and how i got there so kind of breaking through that and i think at its core then it's kind of mindfulness so it kind of allows you to realize how mindfulness can maybe help you and i i do the same thing in conversations actually sometimes i think hmm how did we get to this part in the conversation and i try and restrate trace the steps back and that actually helps in the podcast a lot too because i can pull up things that we talked about 50 minutes ago in the podcast and still talk about them because i'm retracing my steps backward and i think tracing backwards is a pretty mindful thing to do because you have to kind of think and experience your life in the past through your own observations of what was going on inside of your brain and inside of your body. So I think that's potentially a really good training method to get more mindful. Whenever you get somewhere and you realize, hey, I don't really know how I got here, try and retrace those steps and try to maybe get more mindful. Maybe try and break out of that pattern and see if you can be more mindful and present in the moment. Absolutely. And what Emil's talking about too with retracing steps, this is also a similar kind of concept that you may be familiar with if you're an athlete or maybe you're a musician or an artist or a chef. Um, When you are training and learning a new skill and you're trying to improve and you're really trying to develop a technique that's both mentally and physically demanding, those initial early learning stages when you're moving really slow can feel kind of frustrating and maybe can feel a little bit challenging, maybe more challenging than you'd like. But allowing yourself to stay in that moment where you are feeling challenged and you're really perceiving, how is my body feeling? What am I intending to do? Where am I trying to go? What is this action? How do I feel about it emotionally? What's my intended goal for this action? All of those questions, allowing them to be present, giving yourself time to ask them in your head and perhaps answer them or maybe set them aside. These are also important skills that we develop at different points in our lives with different hobbies or interests we have. But we can apply these same concepts of learning and reflection to every aspect of our lives. And specifically in this context, like we're talking about in the podcast, to the process that we have when we're taking supplements and we're trying to optimize our physical and our mental health. I actually think this is a perfect segue into another question from Reddit. Um, 
there was a question from self justice and send justice oh, actually send justice sorry <laughs> <laughs> so there's a question from that person and i will let erica uh, handle this one because it is more specific to her experience. Yeah. So Send Justice asks, I have noticed hormones affect the efficiency of certain supplements. Also considering that women have a monthly fluctuating hormonal profile, do you have any recommendations as how dosages should be adjusted and what is your opinion on the lack of taking women's cycles into account when testing drugs? Um, this is a great question and this really ties into what I was speaking about before um, with mindfulness and having a mindful approach to every aspect of our lives. For those of you who menstruate, menstruation and the menstrual cycle is something that is a really great opportunity actually to practice mindfulness and to develop a sense of what's happening in my body and what's happening to my mood and my mental state throughout the month throughout the day, um, specifically related to my menstrual cycle and my hormones. Over time, as I have become more practiced and more developed in my personal bioassaying and my mindfulness practices, I've found that there's about one day of questioning that I have in the month where I go, why am I feeling so hungry? Why am I feeling really like argumentative and I'm excitable and I'm feeling kind of more social and I'm also just feeling a little more on edge but you know creative and excited and maybe a little bit more aggressive or a little bit more sarcastic than I normally am and this can come in positive forms for sure but it can also have some more negative effects because I just feel a little bit more sensitive and you know, there may be like one or two days where I'm wondering like, what's what's causing this? And then as soon as I start to feel this kind of these questions build and these sensations really like taking over um, my my daily mental state or or causing some issues in my ability to stay focused or maybe my ability to stay calm in a certain conversation or a moment, that's my cue of going what day is it? What week is it? And where might I be in my menstrual cycle that is causing these really, really specific and noticeable effects to my mental and my physical health? While I don't have the exact ability to you know, track my hormones or know exactly what's happening at each hour of the day when it comes to my menstrual cycle, because I don't personally do that, I do ask myself and these you questions. you can't really do that with current available technology. And yeah. maybe we can uh, address that in the next question from Reddit. <laughs> totally, totally. But I do make it a point to ask myself these questions and check in with myself because um, the hormonal changes and the effects that these have on our mood and our physical state um, throughout our menstrual cycle are significant. And for some people, they can be you know really difficult to manage and it can make... Um, you know, physical and mental health more challenging, but it's also a good opportunity, like I said before. So I think Emil probably has more insight when it comes to how um, supplements would be affected by hormonal changes. So Emil, what do you think in terms of like dosages or or just how to approach supplements when keeping in mind um, people who are menstruating? Yeah, that's a really interesting topic. And there are some real neurological changes that happen during certain parts of the menstrual cycle. So um, 
right before menstruation, the period leading up to it, dopamine D2 receptor density goes up, which you mentioned actually that during that time you feel a little bit more creative. And this actually seems to be related to dopamine D2 receptors. And it seems to be a pretty um, reliable thing that happens for a lot of people. They tend to get more creative right before menstruation happens or like a week before menstruation happens. And there's some really interesting studies about that too. Uh, One of these studies, it's a little uh, controversial maybe, but they did a study on exotic dancers and they found that right before their menstruation, these exotic dancers were getting significantly more tips. Earning way more money. Earning way more money because they were a little bit more aggressive. They were a little bit more creative. They were more motivated to show off their moves. And this seems to be related to dopamine D2 receptor density going up. And without getting too Freudian with it or, you know, going too far into the ideas of you know, finding a partner or thinking about fertility or these things, the the specific mechanisms that we're talking about are a lot simpler than that. So we don't have to go too far into like the nuance of of the specific study, but this is really, really relevant. Yeah. So we'll stay away from the actual psychology of it. But if we look at the neuroscience of it, it makes a lot of sense because compounds that actually act on dopamine D2 receptors quite strongly have a very similar effect both in men and women. So when women experience a rise in dopamine D2 receptor density, it's almost like they are taking a compound that is affecting dopamine D2 receptor activity. And as we mentioned earlier, dopamine D2 activation by itself can actually make you a little bit more creative. Another thing it can do is it can make you a little bit more likely to do risky things because a lot of pleasure is associated with dopamine D2 activity as well. So when that dopamine D2 uh, density goes up, there is actually more reward to rewarding activities like eating food. So maybe that's another reason why you might become a little bit more hungry and maybe have a stronger emotional response to food. But more importantly, to get back on topic, it does mean that because of these hormones, your receptors function differently. So it does stand to reason that a supplement that works well most of the month might not work all too well during that period or right after that period of time, just because of different densities of receptors. So a very specific uh, supplement I could think of that would be susceptible to these changes would be Subroxy. Subroxy being a dopamine transporter inhibitor enhances the level of dopamine present in the brain. And when this occurs potentially with enhanced dopamine D2 receptor density, then the effects of subroxy might be more pronounced actually during that period of time than after that period of time. That's really fascinating. So when it comes to the last part of this question, um, what's our opinion on the lack of taking the menstrual cycle into account when testing drugs? My opinion is quite simple and it's it's more of a call to action rather than a rather than an opinion and that call to action is for people who are menstruating take the tools that you have available to you the mindfulness tools you have the bioessing tools and the research that's available 
and learn, learn about how the supplements that you're taking are affecting you and do your research and explore and really dive into the information that's available to you because the more educated we are, the more educated menstruating people are about what's happening in our bodies and ways that we can be mindful and optimize our physical and mental health during our menstrual cycles, the better equipped we are to face the world and, you know, some of the some of the lack of research and the obvious lack of resources for menstruating people to understand what's happening in their bodies. And we can actually do something about it because we have the tools available to us and the information available to us that might motivate us to make a change in how we live our lives. And also the things and the information that we demand from people such as scientists and doctors and researchers, because this is a really important part of science is pushing forward these issues that are important to us and really digging in for ourselves and for the the world at large into these issues that are really important and that affect our daily lives. Yeah, and I, I really think we don't pay enough attention to this, um, obviously, because we, we probably live in a, well, we do live in a bit of a sexist world, of course. So the focus on healthcare is oftentimes more on men. Um, e- even I recently discovered that most crash dummies are actually modeled on an average male body and airbags being developed are just being developed for an average male body and they actually don't really work all too well sometimes for the average female body. So with supplements, it seems totally normal that you would have these variations between men and women and women have variations throughout the month so we should pay more attention to that because we can optimize maybe supplementation and maybe to to smooth out some of those curves too maybe you want less peaks of certain hormones maybe we can actually focus on that and we can focus on some of the more Um, downstream pathways that happen like some of the inflammatory compounds that get released due to these hormonal changes which then causes cramps and pain maybe we can actually help attenuate that so i do think it would be very interesting to dive into this topic in more depth and do more research about it and maybe if if all of you are interested in a podcast specifically about this then we can do a podcast dedicated to this topic because I do think that this factor is oftentimes left out of research too because I I read a lot of research that's using both men and women but I hardly ever see them controlling for menstrual cycles so I think this is very important on that same topic time is also very important and this just brings me quickly back to the bio saying thing a very interesting thing that I discovered recently is that CYP enzymes, so the cytochrome P450 enzymes, which metabolize a lot of the compounds that we take, are under circadian control, which means that they are expressed more or less at different points of the day based on our circadian rhythms. So in terms of bioassaying, this is also something to think about. Maybe a compound in the morning gets metabolized much quicker than it does at night or in the middle of the day. So that's another thing to, to keep in mind maybe with this duration of action or uh, magnitude of effects. Maybe it's changing with um, circadian control of certain things, or maybe it's changing with hormonal control of certain things. I think time is an interesting aspect to think about and how time changes things and how we 
ourselves are in different cycles. And of course, women have hormonal cycles, but men certainly have hormonal cycles too. Maybe when our testosterone levels are a little bit lower, maybe certain supplements don't work as well. So this is another interesting thing to think about. But most of the time we are in the dark about this. We, we kind of have to guess and use our best judgment, which I think the next question will give us a bit of an interesting segue. Absolutely. So BRM1851 asks, if you had $100 million to spend on health tech and no red tape, how would you spend it? So very easy for me. And $100 million is probably not anywhere near enough to develop this kind of technology. But we have blood pressure cuffs that we can use at home. We have scales that we can use at home to weigh our body weight. Some scales, I don't think it's very accurate, but some scales can even measure your body fat percentage. So having these tools, we can kind of adjust how much we eat, adjust our caloric load to stay at a certain weight, and we can verify this with an analytical tool by just standing on a scale and going, okay, I weigh this much. Or if we want to ensure that our blood pressure is in a healthy range, we can just slap a blood pressure cuff on and we can measure our blood pressure. And it's easy to get some actual data to know, okay, the diet that I'm doing works because I can visually see that it's working and I can verify on a scale that it's working. But a lot of the stuff we do, we don't really have a good visual marker or um, a number that we can put on it. So I think my $100 million would go to developing some sort of technology where we could do rapid at-home blood tests, similar to taking a blood pressure measurement. So maybe if we have this, this tool, this magical tool, that I don't know exactly how you would develop it, maybe some sort of compact FTIR-type technology, if we could analyze very small amounts of our blood, maybe on a daily basis and then get a better idea of what are our hormone levels at, what are our vitamin levels at, our mineral levels at, then we have a much more accurate way of supplementing. So for example, year round, I take vitamin D3 at 5,000 IU. And I think this is enough year round, but when the sunshine goes down in the winter and I'm spending less time outside, is this 5,000 IU still enough? All of the research I've read tells me, yes, it's enough, but maybe I need a particularly large amount of vitamin D, or maybe I'm very efficient with my vitamin D and I actually don't need that much. And I've been chronically overdosing vitamin D and maybe it's better if I take a slightly lower dose, like 4,000 IU. I think having the tools available to put a number on and to have analytical results would allow us to develop even better supplements, even better stacks, even better regimens. And hopefully that's something we will have in the future. I like that. And I think that would be really fascinating. And I certainly would enjoy having that technology available for myself as well. My approach for the $100 million, keeping in mind that these ideas would probably cost significantly more than that, is, is actually a little bit more of a general approach. Um, and kind of what we're what we're hoping to do with this podcast, but the way that I would spend that money is literally to just provide and develop the best tools for educating people on how to determine what foods and supplements are doing to our bodies 
and just general education on healthy practices and how to really determine our state of physical and mental health. Because a lot of what we're talking about is related to science education and information research and personal experience and access to supplements. Um, So I think providing more general access to accurate and and incredibly important information um, so that more people can have these skills to be mindful and to be able to bioassay would be the way that I would spend that money. And I think both of these approaches are doing one specific thing, which is also kind of what we've been talking about in this podcast. It is allowing us to take ownership of our own health and how we can influence our own health with minor interventions such as supplements. So understanding this more, being able to do this more independently and successfully, I think is a really interesting way forward. Absolutely. And it also links into the second part of this question from BRM1851, which is, what is one thing that your company has done for your customers that you didn't expect in a surprisingly good way? Um, So I'll let Emil take this one. Yeah. So I think from the very beginning, we've always, the main focus has always been helping all of you to reach your goals and enhance your overall health and more specifically at Nootropics Depot and the focus being on brain health supplements it's enhancing our cognitive function so that's always something we have hoped for but we've gotten in a lot of reports of life-changing effects of some of these supplements and I think that's been surprising to hear that other people are having these effects i've definitely had these effects myself i have too so i guess in a sense it's not that surprising but it is very nice hearing these reports and hearing that these effects are not just limited to us and a lot of people are having life-changing effects from these supplements it's motivating and it really kind of gives us a reason and and like that kind of intrinsic sense of of the value of what we're doing um you know beyond the business and in terms of actually helping people improve their lives and helping people have these benefits and really be able to live their lives fully and and continue to push the boundaries of the things that they're passionate about just like we are for supplements absolutely if it wasn't for supplements I don't think most of my hobbies would be viable because (laughs) they are usually very uh, complex and scientific still. Cognitively demanding. Cognitively demanding, but they give me a lot of pleasure and relaxation. But honestly, without some of the supplements I've been taking, it would be really hard for me to learn about acoustics, for example, and design my own speakers and design listening rooms and run sound systems here and there. It's so complex that I really need the help of these supplements to help me understand it. All right, but enough about us. Let's get back to you guys. So there was actually a question that kind of ties into the $100 million question as well. Yeah, so the question from Infinite Emphasis 560 is, Hi, everyone. I have a question. I've done an amino acid blood test, and my tyrosine levels and phenylalanine levels are quite in the optimum range. We're going to leave out their personal levels, but just skip to the end of their question. 
Is there a rationale behind supplementing L-tyrosine or L-phenylalanine, or both together? Yeah, so this ties into the $100 million question in the sense that it would be really nice if we could do this consistently and test our tyrosine phenylalanine levels and maybe some other amino acids and see, do we actually need some of these uh, amino acids? Are they going to have a benefit for us? Because L-tyrosine and L-phenylalanine works a little bit through a slightly different pathway, but L-tyrosine turns into L-dopa and then from L-dopa into dopamine. And what we're trying to get to is the dopamine portion, which is why we take L-tyrosine. But the enzyme that transforms or turns uh, L-tyrosine into L-dopa, tyrosine hydroxylase, it's what we call a rate-limiting enzyme. So at a certain point, it just gets saturated, and it's not going to turn any more L-tyrosine into L-dopa. So it's a bit of a protection mechanism as well. But that does mean if your L-tyrosine levels are particularly high, that means that the enzyme, tyrosine hydroxylase, may already be saturated and may not actually turn any of that L-tyrosine into L-dopa. L-tyrosine can do some other things, like it is a precursor to melanin, which is a great... Uh, oxidation regulating compound as well so there are some benefits actually to taking L-tyrosine rather than just dopamine production however if we are going for that main effect then yeah if our L-tyrosine levels are high then there really is no reason to take L-tyrosine so this oftentimes is not the case I don't think we are often at a level of L-tyrosine where the tyrosine hydroxylase enzyme is fully saturated so usually there is a benefit to it. But if we had somewhere inside and we could actually test our blood levels of L-tyrosine, then we could make better decisions about it. To answer the question of taking L-tyrosine and L-phenylalanine together, that could actually be an interesting stack, and there might be some synergism there because they produce dopamine through slightly different pathways. So maybe some of you are curious, and I'll just ask the question for all of us, how does this tie into mindfulness and bioassaying? So it's a bit of a stretch to make it fit, of course, but I think if you're taking L-tyrosine and you're not really noticing a big change, then maybe that enzyme is saturated and you're not actually getting the intended effect. So bioassaying and mindfulness might help you identify that. But to a certain degree, maybe this being able to test your own blood levels is like the next level of mindfulness and bioassaying because rather than relying on our own subjective analysis tools. We actually can put a number on it, we can have a bit of a reference, and that might also actually circumvent some of the issues with um, placebo, nocebo, expensive placebo, and confirmation bias. I see. So this would be like an additional tool to add to your bioassaying and mindfulness kind of tool belt. Absolutely. Okay. So moving on to another question, um, we combined two questions because they were quite similar. So one came from Solo the Sensei, and the other came from Future AD7642. So we just kind of paraphrased this question. On dopamine specifically, since we're all looking for extra focus and motivation, I've heard that dopamine breaks down into neurotoxic metabolites. So should most supplement users even be trying to increase dopamine levels in the first place? Or is this not such a huge concern if we take specific measures? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, That definitely does happen. So dopamine breaks down into a compound which produces large amounts of oxidative stress, especially if it finds its way back into neurons from which it was released. So that's something we need to keep in mind. 
Usually this is more something that we find with very large uh, increases in dopamine levels and not something likely that we are to find in some of our own supplements. Uh, it's a little bit more of a subtle effect. However, the likelihood of some more oxidative stress because there is more dopamine floating around and being metabolized could be an issue. And I think we are in a little bit of luck because a lot of the compounds that we have that promote dopamine levels actually act as oxidation regulating uh, compounds themselves. So for example, aroxalin A, while inhibiting the dopamine transporter and promoting overall dopamine levels, also acts as an oxidation regulating compound. So in that sense, they probably balance each other out a little bit, but it's hard to say with precision. However, I would say at the levels that we are promoting dopamine, more optimizing dopamine rather than dumping a bunch of dopamine into the synaptic cleft like some other things can do, I think this doesn't apply a whole lot to us. However, what I will say is that it applies to all of us always because dopamine is always being overturned and being turned into these metabolites that can have oxidative stress. And this is just something that happens all the time. And our neurons and brains are pretty well equipped with handling this oxidative stress. This is just the way the brain works and it has worked for thousands of years. So we are equipped to handle it. But it's something to think about just in general to keep our dopaminergic system optimized. We might actually want to look at um, compounds that help regulate neurooxidation. So not only just for individuals who are taking supplements that promote dopamine levels, just for everyone in general, it's good to be aware of this aspect of dopamine and good to be aware that there's a somewhat easy way to go around this. Now moving on to our next question from Hormesis. In your experience, which compounds most frequently seem to improve short and long-term memory? Have you tried any that surprised you, i.e. rarely reported as having a beneficial effect on memory, but seems to improve it? Yeah, so I'll start with the one, if we've ever tried something that was surprising. And for me, one of the ones that was surprising was actually alcohol defense. So for a while, I wanted to try out just some ginger, but we didn't have any ginger extracts. So I just tried out a single capsule of our uh, alcohol defense formulation once a day. Just a single one. The normal dose is two capsules, but I just took a single one. And the effects of the ginger were really pleasant, but surprisingly what I noticed after a week is my memory started to get a whole lot better. And looking into it a little bit more, dihydromyrosetin, which is one of the main ingredients in it, it blocks GABA receptors. And this is a good thing in the context of alcohol defense and was always something I thought about without the context of alcohol, what would it do? And there's a lot of recent interesting research that has been starting to look at GABA antagonists for the purposes of promoting memory. So GABA, as we probably all know, maybe after a heavy night of drinking, has a pretty significant effect on our memory function. And this is being done through activation of certain GABA subunits. So the GABA receptor, it's not just a single thing. 
The GABA receptor is made up of certain subunits to which different compounds can bind specifically to those different subunits and produce different overall effects in there, in the whole GABA neuron, which is a pretty complex process. So we won't get into it all too much here, but the interesting thing is if you activate certain subunits, you get relaxing and calming effects without any effects on memory. If you activate other ones, other GABA subunits, then you also get those relaxing effects, but you get those effects combined with memory issues. So they found that if you block some of these specific subunits, then you can actually promote memory without having any of the undesirable effects of blocking GABA. And dihydromyrosetin doesn't seem to cause any edginess or uncomfortableness for me. So I think dihydromyrosetin probably acts on some of these specific uh, GABA subunits that helps promote memory without inducing some of the undesirable effects of GABA antagonism. So this one was really surprising to me and actually led me down a research path of looking at different compounds that could work as GABA antagonists while not producing undesirable GABA antagonist effects while also promoting memory. So alcohol defense was one of the first ones and actually alcohol defense also contains pyroglutamic acid which has been found to have quite pronounced nootropic actions. So an interesting one maybe to take for a little while just daily is actually our alcohol defense. There's some really interesting things in there which might help promote memory. And I think I might use this as a step off point for maybe some other things that we can look into for promoting memory. And actually one of those things is ginkgo biloba. So one of the ways by which ginkgo biloba helps promote memory is through its bilobolite content. And bilobolite actually is a GABA antagonist too. And it seems at these specific subunits. Oroxalin A is also a GABA antagonist at some of these specific GABA subunits, it seems. And that also appears to really promote memory, in addition to some of its neuroplasticity effects. So I think for me, the supplements that seem to work the best for long-term memory enhancement are things that selectively block certain subunits of GABA. And in our current catalog, I would say alcohol defense is one of the top ones, and then ginkgo is one as well, and subroxy. And I actually take ginkgo and subroxy every day together, and I find that my memory has been really, really good recently. That is a great amount of specific information for the combined question. Um, thanks to all of your questions, we've had a very long and luxurious conversation, but we are running out of time. So, we're going to ask one more question for this podcast, and this one comes from M.M. Milner. I would love to see water slash fat soluble on your labels. I often can't remember and go into the website looking. I would also love to see you give stacking advice. So for that first question, the water fat soluble, it really doesn't matter mostly for supplement absorption. This is one of the reasons why we don't have it on our labels. It would be a lot of work for us to determine whether something is water or fat soluble because oftentimes compounds are both water and fat soluble. So this is what we refer to as the log P of a compound. So basically how efficiently it can transition from aqueous to lipid phases, which plays a big role in bioavailability. And that's a another topic but 
basically determining whether something is purely fat soluble, purely water soluble is pretty much impossible and it doesn't really matter all too much anyways because a fat soluble compound doesn't need to be taken with fat. So that's totally fine. Um, that's one of the reasons that's not on our labels and you'll probably never see that on our labels because it, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. So then in terms of the second part of the question, the stacking advice, we actually have a few resources already for this. We have some stack guides, so they we have a few different ones. We have one for fitness, we have one for focus, mental energy, and, and motivation. We have one for just general supplement combinations with different intended goals. So we can link in the description of this podcast, we will link to some of these buying guides. That are on our website and the stack advice. Yeah, so those I think really help and help get a good um, initial idea of how to stack different compounds. On a lot of our newer product descriptions, at the bottom of the product description, we also actually tell you some basic stack ideas of what to combine with the product on the product page and how you can enhance the effects with some other uh, supplements for specific goals so that's a way to do it and sometimes in our blogs we will also touch on stacking we can do a whole podcast probably on stacking that that could maybe be interesting but another thing to remember is if you need stacking help this might be a good topic to post on reddit we can help you but other redditors are also very knowledgeable and tend to jump in and help out whenever necessary to help build stacks because we have a lot of combined experience on our subreddit for stacking. Absolutely. And that is the perfect segue into wrapping up this really awesome and fascinating conversation between Emil and I. So if you're interested in a podcast about stacking, let us know on Reddit and tell us what you would like to hear. Or if there's another question that you have, another topic, um, a specific botanical, make a post on our subreddit. That's r slash Depot, And we would love to interact with you. Um, you can tag me, Erica. I am Nootropics Depot Guru on Reddit. And Emil is... Pretty chill. Pretty chill. So you can tag either of us. You can also tag Mr. You Are So Dumb if you feel so inclined, and we would love to read and answer your questions. We want to say thanks again for listening, for your positive feedback, for your critique, and for your participation in In Search of Insight. This podcast is such a great opportunity for us to dive into so many different research directions and questions and really get a sense for what you, our listeners, are interested in and how we can better equip you with information and questions for you to ask yourselves to go out into the world and to find ways to optimize your physical and mental health. Mindfulness and bioassaying are just two of the many tools we have available to us to help optimize our health, and we hope that you have a very uh, fruitful and smooth and exciting entrance into the new year. Yeah, well said, Erica. Thanks for tuning in and see you next year. Thanks so much for listening and bye-bye for now.